Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Johnny Depp wins the defamation lawsuit against his ex-wife Amber Heard. The jury orders Heard to pay Depp $15 million in damages and Depp to pay Heard $2 million. Question. The statement has a defamatory implication about Mr. Depp. Answer. Yes. The U.S. plans to provide Ukrainian forces with rockets that could hit targets inside of Russia. High mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, and guided munitions with a range of up to 70 kilometers. Most Republican senators are keeping a close eye on bills about abortion, and they told Chuck Schumer they will vote against any attempts to get rid of pro-life protections. Texas governor today is pushing lawmakers in his state to look at solutions to prevent future school shootings. We'll tell you what his proposals are and how are lawmakers on Capitol Hill responding to heightened political pressure across the nation. If my neighbor, let's say her husband is gone for the week and she wants to borrow my gun, that would make us both felons. That's the problem with universal background checks. The Supreme Court says Pennsylvania counties are temporarily not allowed to count undated mail-in ballots, but attorneys say some undated ballots have already been counted. A jury in Virginia ruled that actor Johnny Depp's ex-wife, Amber Heard, defamed Depp by fabricating claims of domestic violence. They said Depp should get $15 million in damages, but also ruled that Heard should get some compensation as well. Here are the details. The seven-member jury on Wednesday sided with all three of Depp's claims about Heard defaming him by fabricating claims of domestic abuse. Depp sued Heard for $50 million in damages over a 2018 Washington Post opinion article Heard wrote. In it, she claimed she had become a public figure representing domestic abuse, but she did not mention Depp by name. Question. The statement was about Mr. Depp. Answer. Yes. Question. The statement was false. Answer. Yes. Question. The statement has a defamatory implication about Mr. Depp. Answer. Yes. Question. The, de the defamatory implication was designed and intended by Ms. Heard. Answer, yes. The jury ruled that Depp should get $15 million in damages. Heard had countersued Depp for $100 million. She said Depp defamed her and characterized her abuse allegations as a hoax via his lawyer in 2020. The jury agreed that Heard had also been defamed by one of the three statements and ruled that she should get $2 million in compensation. Do you find that Ms. Heard has proven all the elements of defamation? Answer, yes. Question, the statement was false. Answer, yes. Do you find that Ms. Heard has proven by clear and convincing evidence that the statement by Mr. Waldman was made with actual malice? Answer, yes. Three. The six-week trial took place at Fairfax County Circuit Court in Virginia. Heard was in the courtroom when the verdict was read, while Depp was in the UK for his performances. The trial has gathered international attention. Many people see it as a case of how men can be victims of false accusations of domestic abuse. Depp posted on social media following the ruling, saying, The jury gave me my life back. I am truly humbled. Heard also reacted to the verdict on social media, saying, The disappointment I feel today is beyond words. I'm sad I lost this case. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. The United States is planning to provide Ukraine with sophisticated rocket systems that could possibly reach Russian territory. And if these rockets are used to hit targets inside Russia, it could drastically escalate the war. NTD's Jason Perry has the story. The Pentagon announced Wednesday that President Biden has authorized a $700 million weapons package for Ukraine. The capabilities in this package include high-mobility artillery rocket systems, or HIMARS, and guided munitions with a range of up to 70 kilometers. The M142 HIMARS, or high-mobility artillery rocket system, is a five-ton truck that carries six rockets or one missile, and its firing range could reach inside Russian territory. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with the NATO Secretary General and discussed this very issue. 
The Ukrainians have given us assurances that uh, they will not use these systems against targets on Russian territory. Uh, there is a strong trust bond between Ukraine and the United States, as well as with uh, our allies and partners. Blinken mentioned the reason for sending the sophisticated rocket systems is that war strategies evolve over time. NATO chief Jens Stoltenberg said that this is a demonstration of real U.S. leadership and that NATO will do its part as well. We have increased our presence in the eastern part of the alliance to remove any room for miscalculation in Moscow about NATO's readiness and determination to defend and protect all NATO allies. Russian President Vladimir Putin's spokesperson commented on the U.S. sending high-tech rocket systems to Ukraine. We believe that the U.S. is deliberately and diligently pouring fuel onto the fire. The U.S. is obviously sticking to the line of fighting with Russia until the last Ukrainian is left standing. He said during his daily conference calls with journalists that Moscow did not trust Ukraine's assurances that the systems would not be used to attack Russia. Jason Perry, NCD News. 48 Senate Republicans said they will vote to block any bill that threatens to change the Hyde Amendment. That's according to a letter sent to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer that was obtained by the Daily Caller. The Hyde Amendment ensures that U.S. tax dollars are not spent on abortions. Republicans said in the letter that for 45 years, the amendment has saved the lives of nearly 2.5 million pre-born children and was supported by both a substantial majority of the American public and a bipartisan majority of sitting United States senators. They said it was most recently signed into law by President Joe Biden, yet his budget for fiscal year 2023 proposes to eliminate the Hyde Amendment and other pro-life protections, and that it also seeks to increase taxpayer funding for the abortion industry at home and abroad. Texas continues to mourn the 21 lives lost in the Uvalde school shooting. In a search for solutions, Texas Governor Greg Abbott is asking the legislature to look at possible new laws to prevent such a tragedy in the future. And with renewed calls to restrict gun rights, how are lawmakers on Capitol Hill responding to mounting political pressure? NTD's Melina Weiskup has more. Students and staff will not return to Uvalde's Robb Elementary School following the deadly shooting last week. And now Texas's Governor Greg Abbott is calling on the state's legislature to look at solutions to prevent future tragedies. Solutions including school safety, mental health, social media, police training, and firearm safety. Since the shooting, U.S. Senator Ted Cruz from Texas has repeatedly been criticized by some for his gun rights advocacy. But he says the federal solution is to give schools more money for security. Senate Democrats cynically blocked school safety funding had Uvalde gotten a grant to upgrade the school security. They might have made changes that could have stopped this shooter. Public sentiment is high following the shooting, and gun control activists are protesting across the country. We banned assault weapons, and that ban spread to the statewide assault weapons ban, and that ban was taken up by Washington as well. And how far does the White House want to go with gun restrictions? He supports a ban on sale of assault weapons and high-capacity magazines. He does not support a ban on the sale of all handguns. Universal background checks have also been pushed by some activists. Here's one congressman from Texas explaining why he's opposed to this idea. If, if my neighbor, let's say her husband is gone for the week and she wants to borrow my gun, that would make us both felons. That's the problem with universal background checks. And and the people who are least likely to adhere to universal background check are the criminals who intend harm. The Democrat-controlled House, acting quickly at a time when public sentiment is high, will move tomorrow to mark up a bill dubbed the Protecting Our Kids Act. It would make it a federal law to raise the minimum age to 21 for buying some semi-automatic firearms, among other restrictions. This action the House is taking this week is mainly a messaging tool because the specific proposals that the House has put forward so far are unlikely to garner the 10 Republican votes needed in the Senate to get it to Biden's desk. With that being said, there is a bipartisan group in the Senate working on a more moderate, watered-down version of some form of gun legislation. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. President Biden meets with baby formula makers to address the ongoing shortage. But could the administration have acted sooner? NTD's Iris Tao has more. 
There's nothing more stressful than the feeling you can't get what your child needs. As parents nationwide struggle to find baby formula, President Biden announced that more airlifts are coming from Australia and the UK. High quality formula is already on the way to American shelves. Biden on Wednesday met with major baby formula makers, but Abbott, the company at the center of the shortage, was not invited. Abbott's Michigan plant was shut down in February over safety concerns while it's reopening, Biden said. But it takes time. Abbott accounts for about 40 percent of the overall infant formula market in the United States. He added that it's going to take a few more months for things to get back to normal, noting ongoing efforts. However, this is sort of a last resort kind of a situation. Anand Iyer, an expert on supply chains, told NTD the current efforts should have been done much earlier. So my question is, when you shut down supply, you had that much time before you start going short. What happened the last three, four months? That's my question. But Iyer also noted a dilemma faced by the administration. If they had gone in earlier, they would have been criticized for interfering. When they go in late, then, you know, it's more expensive. And earlier this week, the administration invoked the Defense Production Act for a third time to help ease the shortage. It also has been importing a limited supply of formula from overseas. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Last week, a federal court allowed counties in Pennsylvania to count undated ballots. But the Supreme Court has now blocked that ruling. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details. GOP Senate candidates David McCormick and his opponent Mehmet Oz are in a tight race, which requires a recount. Election workers across the state are now recounting votes, and Oz is currently leading by about 900 votes. Last Monday, McCormick filed a lawsuit asking that undated mail-in ballots be counted. He asked for this in part because a court had already allowed undated ballots to be counted in a different election. But on Tuesday, the Supreme Court temporarily blocked the counting of undated ballots until they finish reviewing the case. McCormick's lawsuit states that elections boards legally don't have to get rid of undated ballots. His attorney said some undated ballots had already been counted. Oz's campaign made its own filing and called McCormick's lawsuit a desperate attempt to scrounge up more votes. It's unclear when the Supreme Court will complete its review. Arlene Richards, NTD News. New York. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on Tuesday admitted to something most Americans have known for months, that she and other top officials last year wrongly assessed the rising inflation. In 2021, Yellen said inflation posed only a, quote, small risk. She was among those who initially framed inflation as a temporary side effect of the economy returning to normal after the pandemic. She admitted Tuesday that she had failed to anticipate how long inflation would last and how bad it would be. I think I was wrong then about um, the path that inflation um, would take. As I mentioned, there have been unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have boosted uh, energy and food prices and um, supply bottlenecks that have affected our economy badly that I didn't, at the time didn't fully understand. Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell has also taken heat for what critics call a slow assessment and response to the rising inflation. Coming up, a new terminal for the Long Island Railroad will be open for service by the end of the year. It sits beneath Grand Central Station and will boost LIRR capacity by 40%. And gas prices are higher than ever, especially on the West Coast. So much so that the price per gallon at some gas stations has already surpassed the federal minimum wage. We'll hear from an expert about what's happening and what can be done. When you look at TV networks in America, a soundbite and bited out culture prevails on news and commentary programs. As a Canadian, I'm fascinated with America. And I wanted to offer American thought leaders an opportunity to share their thoughts in a deep dive format where we can explore their ideas together. And so American Thought Leaders was born. The world's most brilliant thinkers believed that open discourse was the key to greatness. However, all around the world, we see that discourse is being stifled and political agendas have subverted media. 
the Epoch Times launched its Global Thought Leaders program to bring back this great tradition of free thought. As the host of American Thought Leaders, every week I interview some of the most intriguing minds on the most pressing issues of our time. Be sure to check out our new episodes every week. Long Island Railroad, or LIRR Terminal, is nearing completion below Grand Central Terminal and Madison Avenue. Authorities have named it Grand Central Madison. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. New York Governor Kathy Hochul announced on Tuesday that the Long Island Railroad East Side Access Terminal is on track for completion this December. I'm proud to announce that this new LIRR Terminal will be called Grand Central Madison. That is the, uh, what we're unveiling here today, our new logo. This terminal will allow the LIRR to boost its capacity by 40% and aims to bring 60% more traffic from Long Island into Manhattan during peak hours. It sits directly beneath the current Grand Central Station. But when there's, you're talking about a place as iconic as Grand Central, you can't change that. I mean, this conjures up the images of glory in a time early 1900s, 1911, 1912, when, when the world was stunned by the majesty of this building itself and how it has expanded and morphed into such a, a critical lifeline for this community and connecting uh, the far reaches of places like Long Island to now to this central core. The project cost $11.1 billion, took 14 years to complete, and was plagued by major cost overruns and delays. But the governor promises it will be open for passenger service by the end of the year. This new terminal will divert some Long Island Railroad trains from their current terminus at the overcrowded Pennsylvania station on the west side to Grand Central. It is the largest LIRR expansion in 112 years, and the largest passenger rail terminal to be built in the U.S. since the 1950s. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. As of June 1st, the national average gas price is just under $5 per gallon. And in California, it's over $6. Prices at some gas stations in California are even higher, surpassing the federal minimum wage. NTD's David Lamb spoke with a petroleum expert at GasBuddy about what's happening. Gas prices have just been going up, and up, and up. Some states are seeing higher prices than others, but in California, one gallon of gasoline at some gas stations have hit $8. That's more than the federal minimum wage of $7.25. Patrick DeHaan, head of petroleum analysis at GasBuddy, says gas prices are expected to remain near record levels for much of the summer. Well, unfortunately, it looks rather grim uh, for motorists. We continue to set new record high in terms of the national average, almost on a daily basis. The average now about $4.71 a gallon. That's the highest level ever. And with the EU announcing recently that it's going to sanction Russian crude oil, uh, oil prices have continued to heat up, and that will likely continue to push prices higher. In fact, we may be just several weeks away from seeing the U.S. national average hit the $5 gallon mark, and we could go higher as we start hurricane season. According to June 1st data from GasBuddy, the average price for a gallon of gas across all of the states is above $4. Seven of those states are above $5 a gallon. States with the highest gas averages are Hawaii, Nevada, and California. The Golden State's average is $6.19. There's about a dozen stations, uh, mainly in Southern California, that are charging 2 to $3 a gallon above the average. Um, that is fairly common for California, which happens more in some of the more affluent areas of California, including places like Beverly Hills and more rural areas like Needles and Essex, California, that are rather remote. One driver said he was lucky enough to avoid high prices by working from home but he felt for people whose jobs depend on their car. For $7 or $8 gas, uh, I don't believe that I would, uh, I, I would go to a, such a station. The, the prices that I've seen that are 
very high, I think, or five and six dollars. So I would avoid anything that was seven or eight dollars. Uh, for other people that have to uh, commute every day, yes, this is a big uh, kind of a disaster. Dehan says there are several things motorists can do to impact the amount of spending at the pump. One of the biggest, probably easiest thing for motorists to do is simply trying to drive more fuel efficiently. Uh, limiting acceleration, slowing down on interstates to 55 and 60 miles an hour would likely boost the amount of miles they get out of a tank by anywhere from 10 to 25 percent. Dehan says those tips could lead to saving anywhere from 50 cents to a dollar per gallon. Even though it's not much when facing six, seven, or eight dollars per gallon in California right now, every little bit helps. David Lamb, NTD News, California. This week, California's state legislators are hearing and voting on bills that have been passed by the other house. One bill aims to give minors the ability to receive vaccines without parental consent. NTD's Cynthia Kai has what the lawmakers are saying, including when things got heated. California Assembly members held a hearing on Senator Scott Wiener's Senate Bill 866. The bill would allow minors aged 12 to 17 to receive vaccines without parental consent. But during the Wednesday morning Judiciary Committee hearing, some Assembly members questioned the necessity and health benefits of SB 866, highlighting COVID vaccines as an example. The incidence of severe disease for kids from COVID is really so small that it doesn't really show up in the data. That's especially true from the strains that are dominant now. And it's especially true given that the CDC now says that 75% of kids have already had COVID. So you know, can you just tell me concisely where is the evidence that this bill will have a positive impact on public health? In response, Wiener says minors should be able to make their own medical decisions on all available FDA-approved vaccines and not just COVID. You heard the testimony from the doctor that there are kids who do get severely ill from COVID, who do get hospitalized and do die. But it's not just about the COVID vaccine. And I, I'd be honest, with, we know that, that, that wild, what they call wild polio is still present in the world. Lawmakers also voiced concern about who knows what's best for their children. But again, you're creating a general law. So the question we have to ask as policymakers is that generally speaking, is it the parent or the child who has the best understanding of the child's medical history? I, I think that uh, teenagers are absolutely um, able to make that decision uh, for themselves to get vaccinated. They absolutely can. Those in favor of the bill said it's important to listen to science. It's important that we do listen to the professionals that have studied in this. The fact that we have the American Academy of Pediatrics in favor of this. But others argue it's a parent's right to ensure their children's safety. This is a parental right, a right to know that their child is safe. Why is it that we have them have to write consents if they want to take a field trip? Why is it that they have to have consent of right, you know, if they want to play a sport? But we can go ahead and give a 12-year-old, 13-year-old the right to make this decision. This is not about vaccinations. This is about the rights of parents. Davies doesn't believe kids are able to make these decisions at the age of 12. We don't think really well when we're kids. We just know what we're angry about, and these are our emotions and our feelings. But common sense tends not to come in there again at the age of about 25. According to the bill's analysis, SB 866 simply builds on existing laws that allow minors to consent to certain types of medical procedures. In the end, the committee passed the bill in a 5-4 to four vote, with Brian Mainsheim voting with the three Republican members against the bill. SB 866 is now headed to the assembly floor. Millions of people are now under new dramatic water restrictions in Southern California. Starting Wednesday, some people in the L.A. area are now limited to watering their lawns just one day a week. Stephanie Elam reports. With no rainfall and record high temperatures exacerbating the already dry conditions, the southwest mega drought is intensifying. 11% of California is now in exceptional drought, the worst designation according to the U.S. Drought Monitor. Add to that Lake Mead, the nation's largest reservoir, which keeps draining to unprecedented lows, from human bones to old boats. 
If it'll start. The precipitous fall is revealing secrets long hidden underwater. There's probably two V8 engines under the mud. For the first time, Lake Mead, which supplies water to millions of people in the West, has fallen to a level that may force the federal government to institute a second tier of unprecedented water restrictions following the first round of cuts in January. Officials now say it's likely to drop another 12 feet by this fall. By September 2023, the government expects the lake will only be 19 percent full. For the Southwest, that could mean the most severe level of water cuts. California is one of those states that relies on water from Lake Mead. Its two largest reservoirs, Shasta Lake and Lake Oroville, are at critically low levels, at just half of their historical averages. We are doing what we had signaled uh, was likely to happen. For months, Governor Gavin Newsom has called on residents and businesses to voluntarily cut their water usage by 15 percent. But in March, urban water usage rose by 19 percent from the same month in 2020, spurring Newsom to pressure the state's largest urban water suppliers to beef up their water conservation efforts or potentially face a significant reduction in water use statewide this summer. In response, municipalities and agencies are taking action. The State Water Resources Control Board voted to ban watering any ornamental turf at commercial sites. In Los Angeles, outdoor watering is only allowed two days a week. In the Bay Area, at least two water districts are enforcing excessive water usage with fines. The East Bay Municipal Utility District is also prepared to release the names of customers who excessively violate the mandatory restrictions. All this, and it's not even summer yet. Tesla CEO Elon Musk wants people back in the office. He's demanding that the company's office workers return to in-person work or leave the company. The new policy was disclosed in leaked emails that Musk sent to Tesla's executive staff Tuesday. He wrote, anyone who wants to do remote work must be in the office for at least 40 hours a week or depart Tesla. Musk said he would personally review any requests for exemption, but for the most part, quote, if you don't show up, we will assume you have resigned. He said the company will continue to make the most exciting and meaningful products of any company on earth and that that won't happen by phoning it in. Tesla did not respond to a request for comment on the change. And a majority of student loan borrowers didn't make any payments during the pandemic freeze. That's according to a recent article by the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. It said 60% of borrowers who qualified for forbearance didn't make a single payment between August 2020 and December 2021. It seems the financial divide between those who paid and those who didn't is getting bigger. At the end of last year, the credit card balances of those who didn't make payments rose at a faster pace. Their delinquency rates on credit cards and auto and mortgage debts also rose more, signs that their budgets might already be strained, and they could have trouble restarting student loan payments when the freeze is lifted at the end of August. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, the two-time defending Stanley Cup champions are marching toward NHL history. NTD's Dave Martin breaks down their Eastern Conference Finals matchup against New York. And Shanghai is finally reopening after two months of strict pandemic lockdowns. But millions are still stuck at home, with others saying they're sad and bitter about the Chinese regime's efforts to enforce a zero-COVID policy. Find out more after the short break. Now for your sports news, here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The NHL's Eastern Conference Finals start tonight with the Rangers hosting the two-time defending champion Lightning. The matchup features two of the best goalies in the game in Igor Shosturkin of New York and Tampa Bay's Andre Vasilevsky. Vasilevsky won the Vezina Trophy as the league's top goalie three years ago and has been a finalist for the award four different times. However, Shosturkin is favored to win it this year. Shesterkin led the league in numerous categories, but struggled early against Pittsburgh in round one of the playoffs. However, the 25-year-old turned things around and helped the Rangers recover from a 3-1 deficit to win in seven. 
then against Carolina, he was back to his dominant self, helping them to a second straight Game 7 victory. Meanwhile, Vasilevsky allowed just three goals in their four-game sweep of Florida, which had the league's best record. The 27-year-old has taken up his game a notch in the postseason before, winning last year's Conn Smythe Trophy as playoff MVP. Tampa Bay has now reached the conference finals in six of the past eight seasons, a run that started by beating New York here in 2015. The winner will face the winner of the Edmonton-Colorado series in the Stanley Cup Finals. Colorado won Game 1 last night, 8-6. At the French Open, top-ranked women's player Iga Swiatek downed American Jessica Pagula in straight sets for a 33rd straight win. Swiatek may have benefited from a crucial no-call in what appeared to be a double bounce. The play in question came on a first-set breakpoint opportunity, while tied at 3-all. The then-converted break was a big part in her winning five straight games to take control of the match. Sviatek, who hasn't lost since February, is on the longest women's streak since Serena Williams won 34 in a row nine years ago. On the men's side, Rafael Nadal beat defending champion Novak Djokovic in four sets to advance to the semis. The four-hour-plus match had the intensity of a championship final and ended early this morning local time after Nadal won the four-set tiebreak. The showdown was typical of a Nadal-Djokovic clash featuring 57 rallies of at least 9 shots, the longest being 25, as the crowd had to be silenced numerous times by the chair umpire. Nadal will face third-seeded Alexander Zverev Friday as he gets closer to a 22nd Grand Slam title. In baseball, Washington Nationals general manager Mike Rizzo said on a radio show Wednesday morning that superstar outfielder Juan Soto will not be traded. Rizzo told the sport junkies on 106.7 that they intend to build around Soto instead. The 23-year-old has been the subject of trade rumors this season. The former batting champ told ESPN that he rejected a 13-year, $350 million offer from the Nationals before the lockout this past offseason. Washington won the World Series in 2019, but has finished last in the NL East the past two seasons. Soto won't be eligible for free agency until 2024. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And China's unemployment rate for young people is hitting record highs. A record 10 million university students will also graduate in 2022 and flood the labor market. It will be very difficult for these students to find a job. What's the cause? NTD's Don Ma speaks with a China expert and economic analyst. Ethan, thanks for joining us. So China's jobless rate among 16 to 24-year-olds is at record highs. 18%. It's more than double the rate in the U.S. Why is it so high? Is it because there's not enough work or is the younger demographic not willing to work? So that's a great question and thanks for having me, Don. Uh, so the reason why China's employment unemployment rate is so high is predominantly because of two factors, uh, one of which is the renewed lockdown policies that are now spreading across the country as Omicron breaks out. And the others due to their long-standing regulatory policies due to common prosperity, which started in 2021. Um, to, your, to your point about whether it's the youth unwilling to work, um, that, that does not really factor into unemployment because if you declare that you're not willing to work, then you are most then you would also be declared um, not in the labor pool. So that's not really factored in. So you talked about common prosperity. Does that mean last year's crackdown on China's consumer tech and education sectors? That is a contributing factor to unemployment rate? Absolutely. So some of the largest sectors hemorrhaging uh, workers would be big tech, uh, ed private education, unemployment numbers have been steadily increasing over time. If you look at the long-term trend of Chinese unemployment, it spiked in 2020. That's because of the outbreak of the virus. Then it gradually goes down as it becomes as it gets under control. But then once 2021 gets around, when the crack, the regulatory crackdowns start happening, it starts to take up. And then once the zero COVID policy, Shanghai lockdown style policies go into effect, that's when it really skyrockets. So I just want to focus a little bit on uh, the younger demographic. A record 10 million college graduates are expected to enter China's job market. So what's the reality facing them? Mm. Yeah, the, I mean, the reality is as poor as, as it can get for uh, graduates in a country as advanced and as educated as China, uh, because these are the people that are going to be most affected by uh, these policies because they're mostly focusing on uh, educated work, right? These are people who would uh, want jobs in the big tech firms, want jobs in private education, want jobs in the cutting edge. 
And that's what got hit hardest by the Common Prosperity Initiatives. And I know all those who maybe don't really fit that mold are also thrown under the bus as well. I think JD, Alibaba, uh, what was it, Tencent, they posted double-digit layoffs uh, recently, which is absurd. Uh, and these companies are also absolutely massive. These are mega companies. And so the fact that these companies are losing double-digit numbers worth of employees um, is really going to dampen the job prospects of all these recent graduates. You're getting a lot of students who are basically being left with a little future to, to be seen within the, within the foreseeable uh, upcoming future. Right. It seems like a very serious situation. Do you see any way out for them? I mean, the, the quick answer would be to stop with these policies that are mostly based on politics and not necessarily uh, correlated with any sort of sound economic thinking. Uh, but that is unlikely because, like I said, the this is a political matter. Uh, so I think the CCP is really between a rock and a hard place in the sense that uh, they want to continue with these political objectives, but those political objectives are leading to their own consequences, i.e. A, a huge unemployment rate. Ethan, what are the short-term and long-term impacts on the Chinese economy if the unemployment rate stays high? Hmm. So the short-term effects is what we're seeing right now is that you just have a lot of anxiety um, a lot of protests when it comes to lack of opportunity. So if this continues for a long time, then you have a lot of young people unemployed. And I think out of all the different organizations on earth, the political organizations, the CCP should probably be the most afraid of young people because young people in China, they've been responsible for extremely destabilizing protest movements. There's Tiananmen Square protests. In the long term, if the CCP cannot get this under control, they might have some very interesting protests, some very interesting movements to be dealing with uh, when it comes to controlling their own population. Ethan Yang, Research Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Shanghai's roads, parks and shops hummed back to life on Wednesday. The financial hub ended its strict anti-COVID lockdown for most of its residents after two long and trying months. But more than two million people are still stuck at home. And the after effects of the citywide shutdown are taking their toll. Let's take a look. People cheered in Shanghai's French concession in the early hours of Wednesday after the city finally released most of its 25 million residents from a strict lockdown at midnight. Some people gathered with friends they hadn't seen in person for two months, champagne in hand. Others wandered the streets just to be outside. I feel a bit of social anxiety. I haven't seen people on the street for a long time, outside of people from my community compound. I'm excited but also a bit confused. I'm worried I'm not quite used to seeing so many people. As daylight came, Shanghai's streets, parks and shops hummed back to life. But for some, the allure of a return to normal quickly faded. Things like losing jobs and family members because of the pandemic in the past two months have been forgotten in this split second. Actually, I feel sad deep inside. China has gone against the global consensus that COVID-19 cannot be decisively defeated and has imposed a zero-tolerance policy to stamp out any outbreaks. During Shanghai's lockdown, many residents of the country's key financial and economic hub struggled to get food or medical care. Families were separated and hundreds of thousands were forced into centralized quarantine facilities. Despite criticisms that its zero-COVID policy is unsustainable, China is sticking fast to its goal of cutting off every infection chain at any cost. Life in Shanghai is not quite back to pre-COVID normal. Residents now have to test every 72 hours to take public transport and enter public venues. And those who test positive for COVID-19 and their close contacts still face difficult quarantines. China fell short on a bold plan to have 10 Pacific nations endorse a sweeping new agreement covering everything from security to fisheries. What's at stake? We hear more from NTD's Chenny Wu. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi is midway through an eight-nation tour of Pacific islands where Beijing has been trying to tighten alliances. The China Pacific Island country's common development vision was leaked last week. The plan was meant to cover cooperation across 10 Pacific nations in the fields of free trade, fisheries, security, cyber and maritime mapping, and would have been a significant step forward for the Chinese Communist Party's ambition in the region. Wang stated that the accords would only mean greater harmony, greater justice and greater progress of the whole world. But the deal was shelved Monday after a lack of agreement among the island nations. 
As always, we put consensus first among our countries throughout uh, any discussion on new regional agreements. Micronesia's president said the agreement could enable China to own and control the region's communications infrastructure, meaning the communist regime could intercept emails and listen in on phone calls. The U.S. and its allies have expressed concerns that Beijing would use the proposed accords to take advantage of and destabilize the region. Also, that the Chinese Communist Party may be seeking a military outpost in the South Pacific, greatly increasing their geopolitical reach in an area of traditional American naval dominance. China is the only country with both the intent to reshape the international order and increasingly the economic, diplomatic, military and technological power to do it. Despite having a small population and economy, each Pacific state represents a vote at international forums such as the United Nations. They also control vast swaths of resource-rich ocean and access to a region with strategic military significance. Chenny Wu, NTD News. Chinese security forces are taking advantage of a recently signed security pact with the Solomon Islands and they're conducting training for the Royal Solomon Islands Police Force. And in Ukraine, fighting continues to rage in the Donbass region. Ukraine marks Children's Day with empty school buses to honor the 200 children killed in the war. NTD's Eddie Aitken has more. Russian forces on Wednesday pressed closer to the center of Severodonetsk, an industrial city in Luhansk province. A local governor said a Russian airstrike hit a large chemical plant on Tuesday, blowing up a tank of toxic nitric acid and releasing a plume of pink smoke. In Donetsk, the other province in the Donbas region, the local governor said at least three people were killed and six were injured during a Russian airstrike on Tuesday. The man died on the third floor. All the apartment is covered in blood. All the entrance is covered in blood. A woman died near the entrance on the first floor. It happened right in front of us. This explosion, it's a nightmare. This resident said she was Russian by nationality, but she couldn't accept that Russians come to kill Ukrainians. I went to Donetsk People's Republic. My daughter lives there. Turns out that my son-in-law comes here to kill me. Think again. Stop this bloodshed. We cannot bear it anymore. U.S. President Joe Biden said Washington would supply precision rocket systems and munitions as part of a 600 million pounds weapons package expected to be formally announced on Wednesday. Wednesday is Children's Day in Ukraine. Eight school buses pulled up into western Ukrainian cities Lviv's central square with their empty seats serving as a reminder of the over 200 children who have been killed since the Russian invasion. It is very painful. It is extremely painful. I have nothing else to say. It is terrifying. The death of any human being is terrifying, or the death of the child. They are our future. Stuffed toys and badges with children's names were placed on some of the seats. It is impossible to comprehend the grief of parents who lost their children or of children who lost their limbs. These are awful things. That's why we are raising awareness so that the world will see it and stop any cooperation with Russia. Ukraine has accused Russia of atrocities and brutality against civilians during the invasion. The country's general prosecutor said they had identified more than 600 Russian war crime suspects and started prosecuting around 80 of them. Russia has denied targeting civilians or involvement in war crimes and accused Kiev of staging them to smear its forces. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Russians escaping the political and economic fallout from their country's invasion of Ukraine are settling in their thousands in the tiny Balkan country of Montenegro. And it's not just individuals. Whole companies are moving there too. NTD's Earl Rhodes has this report. A former opposition activist was at her apartment in downtown Moscow when there was a knock on the door from the police soon after the invasion. The questions about her recent trips to Dubai and Canada were easily answered. She'd gone to visit her sons. But to the 60-year-old retired physicist and her husband, the police visit was a clear warning. 
Within days, the couple had packed their bags and were headed for Montenegro. We have ended up here because there was no possibility whatsoever to be in Russia under its current government, because everything that goes on there was incompatible with our views and understanding of the world. They've settled in a village near the Adriatic, where life is calm and the climate is pleasant. They survive on their pensions. Another Russian to have made Montenegro his home since the invasion is Marat Gelman, a prominent gallery owner and outspoken critic of President Putin. The first who fled were software experts. That was obvious in an organized way. Several companies did it in an organized manner. There are around 2,000 programmers who arrived in Montenegro. Gelman said as well as wealthy business people and their families, there were young Russians fleeing military conscription and deployment in Ukraine. In such a situation, parents are selling property and use their rainy day money to buy their children tickets to Montenegro and rent them accommodation, so they will not end up in that war. Montenegro, home to just over 600,000 people, once enjoyed close ties with Russia. But these soured after its decision to join NATO. Businesses, too, are relocating to Montenegro, which is in the process of joining the EU. Artec 3D, a Luxembourg-based manufacturer of 3D scanners, has recently moved its research and development branch from Moscow to a building overlooking the sea. Employee Loretta Marie Pereira said the company was against the war. We wanted to right away find somewhere that would be a safe place for our employees. Um, some of them have Ukrainian roots. Almost everyone in Russia has Ukrainian uh, family and friends. So we wanted to make somewhere that was a, a good place for people to relocate to. The company's owner said 50 employees and their families had accepted an offer to move from Moscow to Montenegro. Earl Rhodes, NTD News. Coming up, the iconic Sydney Opera House gets a $200 million upgrade. The hall's renovation includes upgraded acoustics and accessibility improvements. Pennsylvania's happy flower lady spreads joy in her community by delivering free flowers. And she wants to spread the happiness to other states too. That and more on NTD News. Since the Sydney Opera House first opened, there have been complaints about the acoustics of its concert hall. Now, after numerous attempts to fix the problem, a major renovation is nearing completion, just in time for a post-COVID revival. After decades of complaints about the acoustics, the sound of builders hard at work is music to the ears of concert fans. The showcase music venue is finally moving into the 21st century with a major upgrade to its sound infrastructure. The technology had been from the 1960s. We've brought it up to 2020 standard. We've ensured that this is now world-leading technology. Giant panels, sound diffusers and reflectors have been installed in a revamp that's taken more than two years. When the, the audiences first come into the new concert hall, they'll go, wow, this just feels so warm and fresh. The acoustics weren't the only thing that was outdated. The original design of the Opera House paid little attention to accessibility. One of the key objectives of the console project and the renewal program as a whole is to increase access for those with impaired mobility to all parts of the Opera House. The Sydney Opera House turns 50 next year. The upgrade costs around $200 million. These renovations will ensure audiences can keep enjoying performances here for many years to come. The new acoustics will be put to the test in July, when audiences will hear how the new additions stand up to the rigors of Mahler's Second Symphony. Ever wanted to do something to uplift others? Well, NTD Philadelphia caught up with a woman who brightens her community with leftover flowers by gifting them to people from all walks of life. Here's that story. Thank you. I this is Patricia Gallagher, also known as the Happy Flower Lady. And it's just something that gives me so much joy every day to pick up these free flowers and be able to bloom smiles everywhere I go. Living in the Philadelphia area, she has been sharing the flowers since 2013. Yeah, I think this is an amazing, amazing, amazing um, 
good thing that she's doing for the community. And her goal to make people's day brighter as well as her own. I think as the giver, I have as much joy as somebody that receives the flowers. If you're down or if you're just waking up, you know, on the wrong side of the bed and you get these flowers, it can really turn your day, you know, to a, a good day. And so think many others. I feel wonderful. I feel good. Give me my flowers while I'm living. You know, I, I enjoy getting. To me, it makes my day. The smallest act of kindness can bring happiness to people. You never know what just one hello may do or a bundle of flowers may do to brighten up someone's day. The Happy Flower Day project collects flowers from shops and events that would normally be thrown out. Then they deliver them to people in need of a smile, all for free. They look beautiful and it's so nice. That's really a nice gesture. They say if you give a girl flowers, she'll remember them forever. It all started with a little help from her family. My daughter gave me the idea to contact different stores and ask them what they do with their surplus or day-old flowers. And once we got that idea, my mother and then her 91-year-old friend Bob, the three of us, every morning we would go around Philadelphia and pass out flowers. Patricia is spreading her seeds on a 13-state tour to show others how to deliver free flowers. They don't have to do it every day, but they can just say, what gift do I have to share to the community? Tens of thousands of bouquets later, Patricia's granddaughters get to come with her. I think you have to teach kids, just like we teach them other things, to teach them the value of thinking of others and generosity. So if you teach children when they're small, then they'll grow up to be adults that are caring and empathetic. But that's not all Patricia does. She is also the author of 31 books. I wrote a book called 150 Ways to Sprinkle Kindness in Your Community. One tip is to fill expired meters along the street so people don't get a ticket. Your heart is so filled when you do these little acts of kindness. And she hopes others can do the same. Do all the good you can, in all the ways you can, whenever you can, while you can, for whomever you can. And if everybody in the world did all the good they could, just in their little neck of the woods, we would have a happier, more peaceful world. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.